Merry Christmas to all of you. And uh, after this service, we'll see you next year, right? <laughs> uh, we have no real announcements, so just to say uh, we're so thankful for all of you that are visiting with us this morning. Uh, in your worship folders, you will find a, uh, a registration card that if, if you'd like us to uh, know some of your information so we can be in communication and contact with you, we'd love for, to have you fill that out and either leave it in the offering baskets or in one of the boxes where we, uh, we do offering as well. We would love to serve you in any way that we can, and, and that is a means by which we can communicate with you. Uh, over the last few weeks, we have been doing uh, a series together on worship, and we have been focusing on the, the particular passages from the, the letter to the Hebrews that talk about the Lord Jesus Christ. And we began our series, and, and for some of you, this was a, 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 a new revelation uh, of looking at this in a, in a very new or fresh way, is that right now, while you and I are here in New City, and while we are here in this worship center, worshiping the Lord together, this is but a, a copy, in a sense, of the genuine temple sanctuary where our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Hebrews chapter 8, is right now leading worship in heaven. Scripture says that that uh, in chapter 8 of Hebrews, it says that Jesus is the worship leader of the heavenly temple. And that the way that he leads worship is, is, is pretty fascinating because it's family worship. Because he stands before the Father and he says to the Father, here I am, your worship leader. And then he pans the audience that's with him, the congregation that's with him, and he says, and here are the children that you have given to me. See, in, in the reality of our connection to God or our standing before God, everything depends on relationship, not behavior. And the relationship that is the most important relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ is that you enter into a right standing with God by becoming a brother or a sister of Jesus. That by being born of His Spirit, you become one with Him, and you are enter into a relationship with Him that now, if you're a male, you are a brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you are a female, you are a sister of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the worship service in heaven is based on relationship. And Jesus starts the worship by saying, Father, here I am, and here are the children that you have given to me. It, even though there are beautiful illustrations and analogies of the church throughout the New Testament, the one that Jesus holds to is that we are a family. And the fascinating thing, is, is, and, and this may not be easy for all of you to understand or believe, but right now, Jesus is lifting new city into heaven. We are being merged with the heavenly temple. And he is declaring you sons and daughters, children of the Most High God, and he's declaring your identity to the Father. That is what is most powerful, is that when Jesus says, you're my brother, then the Father says, you're my son. 
When Jesus says, you are my sister, then the Father says, you are my daughter. And there is nothing that anyone on earth can do to change that relationship. But also, it says in in chapter 2, that while he's introducing us as as brothers and sisters and sons and daughters, he's also leading us in the worship of the Father. And one of the cool things is it explains that Jesus loves to sing. And he's singing the praises of his Father and leading the praise singing to the Father. And then it also says that Jesus himself is making his appeal through the preaching and the teaching of his word, that when your heart is strangely warmed by the word of God, it's not simply the words on the page, it's the appeal of the Savior who's speaking directly to you. You see, we had decided some years ago, Lisa and I, that that our number one assignment was not to minister to people, though we love people. Our number one assignment was not to meet the needs of people, though we love to meet the needs of the people. But the needs are so great in our lives that there's no way that any of us can meet the needs of everyone around us. I can't meet all the needs of my wife. My wife can't meet all of my needs. But if we would minister to the presence of God, if we would join Jesus in the worship service of heaven, if we would begin to unite our hearts with his, if we would be tender and soft to his word, if we would open up our hearts and our hands and even even our bodies to worship him with all of our being, then what we found is if we ministered to his presence, his presence could meet the needs of everyone. Because where I am limited, he is not. He has no limitations. And so I say to you with the strongest words that I can say that your number one assignment on earth is not to try to figure out what your purpose is or your direction is or what job you're going to do. Your number one assignment on earth is to minister to the presence of God because that's what you're going to be doing for eternity. But as you do that and you minister to his presence, he doesn't come to you in an omnipresent sort of way. Everybody gets that sense of his presence. The, the, the most rank and, and awful uh, you know, rebel still gets the omnipresence of God. Even as much as someone might curse God, they still cannot depart from his omnipresence. Because by nature, omni means all and everywhere. So all the promises to the children, all the promises to the brothers and the sisters are not omnipresence, they are manifest and special presence of God. So as you minister to his special presence, you activate all his promises for you and your family. But because many of us have no idea that that's our first assignment, we go on to other assignments never doing our first assignment and wonder why life is so unsatisfactory. You were made, if you are a child of God and if you have the Spirit of God, you were made to minister to the presence of God. It's not a chore, it's not even a duty. It's something that your eyes, if you allow them to be opened up, it's something that your eyes see. When we were just singing that song and using even that, the old words of, of, of Newton there where he's, we're singing, amazing grace, how sweet the sound. I could sense in many of you, even those of you who might be somewhat hard and resistant, all of a sudden there was a softening 
And the reason is that if you have been born again of the Spirit and you hear those words, amazing grace, how sweet the sound, your spirit goes, yes, that's sweet. Now, if you're dead in your sins and your trespasses, it has no meaning except that you like the music. And it will not give you chills and it will not give you some sense of resonance with it because you're still dead spiritually. I mean, one of the difficulties that, that we have as a church is that we long for any of you who are, who are spiritually seeking, we long for you to find God. We long for you to accept the grace of God. We long for you to understand the gospel. But our primary purpose on Sunday morning is not to get people saved. That's not our primary purpose. Our primary purpose on Sunday morning is to minister to the presence of God so that somewhere in Rockland County, heaven is invading earth. So that there's a ladder where angels are ascending and descending. <laughs> I, get, I, get, you know, I get people who say nice things about me, and I get people who say not so nice things about me. <laughs> And some of you only say it in the parking lot. But, uh, uh, but in some ways, you know, that matters to me because I love you and I care about you and I want you to understand what I'm trying to say and what I'm trying to do. But let me make this perfectly clear. I am not primarily here for you. Because you will have... <laughs> and don't pretend like you're primarily here for me. Some of you are not here today because Gabe wasn't leading worship. So, <laughs> Tim did a great job, Tim. But you have to understand that we are primarily here for Jesus. He's the one initiating, He's the one leading. And the truth is, even if we could give a persuasive argument to any of you to get, come to faith in Jesus, if it's not spiritually birthed in you, it's just another thing you're adding to an already full plate. There has to be more. You see, we are, we are here every Sunday agitating the heavens. We are here every Sunday annoying the demons. We are here every Sunday to raise up religious snakes and kick them out. I, have, I actually have a gift for that. I'm very good at raising up the religious snakes. Sometimes they bit me pretty hard. You see, because if we will get our first assignment right, then all the rest of the assignments will make sense. But if you don't get the first one right, then all the others seem disjointed and unconnected to the source of the power to fulfill the assignments. Now, this is why today I want to press on you that the Scripture teaches really clearly in Hebrews chapter 2 that Jesus needs to be your furious Obsession. Now, I'll get you to read this with me. Let's read out loud together. I like it when you read with me. I know you're still alive when that happens. 
All right, so let's read together. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Thank you, Lord, for your word. So we've been talking about this aspect then. I'm talking to you strongly about this aspect of the first assignment, which comes from God's final word. Jesus is God's final word. He brings God's final word. If, if you can look, with, look at some of these statements up on the, on the screen. The strongest statement of Christology in all of Scripture is found in chapter 1 of Hebrews. It declares that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Now, in the Old Testament, there was a a manifestation, or there were numerous manifestations of the glory of God. There were actually things that you could visualize that were tangible, but but they were inanimate really interesting. Moses, when he led the people out of Egypt, you know, of the pillar that led them by day, it was like a cloud, and at night it was like a cloud of fire. And this would lead them, and this is what led them to the promised land. And then when Solomon dedicated the temple, the Shekinah glory cloud filled the temple in such a way that the thickness of the presence of God was such that the priests fell and couldn't walk. They were slain in the spirit, so to speak, because they could, they could not handle the thickness of the atmosphere of God's manifest presence. Uh, God has always, 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 friends, he has always been seeking to communicate with you. Every single thing in the Old Testament is pointed at you and at me. It's, it's a message to us of how deeply your creator wants to have a relationship with you. That he wants to be more than the one who created you. He actually wants to enter into a relationship of father, of brother, of coach, of friend, of leader, of all of the things that you need in your life. Now, nothing greater than the form in which the glory appears is Jesus. Jesus is the greatest manifestation and therefore the final word. You could... You could see in the cloud that, that uh, you know, there was a form we could see. You could see his beauty. You could see his brilliance. You could see his infinite importance and all of that. But our God is a God of truth, and he wants to speak, not simply be seen. He wants to be heard. As a matter of fact, if you look closely at Scripture, everyone, by looking at what is visible, can know that there's a God. There's a creation, therefore there's a creator. There's a design, therefore there's a designer. I mean, it's not that complicated. It's very simple, but that doesn't give you a relationship with the designer. You only get a relationship with the designer if you know who he is and you know his revelation of himself. Most people's view of God is little more than their own imagination about what a superhuman would be like. 
instead of recognizing that only God can make known to you about himself as he reveals himself. It's kind of true in our own lives. Many of us have had people who said things about us that were not true because they surmised wrongly. I remember one time uh, uh, someone I worked with very closely was trying to think of how to describe Lisa, and the way that he described her had nothing to do with who she is. And this was before a big group of people. We laughed all the way home and said, he doesn't really know you, does he? And, and, it, and in some ways, you never can feel close to someone if they are assuming something about you that's not true. You can only feel close to someone if you actually know them. Lisa and I have been married, this is our 35th year, and I, I still enjoy when she tells me stories from her childhood, because there are always details that I either missed, or there are things about it, and she, she sometimes hates telling those stories, but I love them, because I get to know the woman I didn't know when she was a girl, and, it, and, and the more I know her, the more I love her. And the more close I feel to her and the more intimately connected with her, because I, I don't want to make I don't want to make guesses. I want revelation. And it's interesting, uh, if you ever notice how people are around here, no one trusts anybody easily. And so that everybody, though, this is one of the fascinating things, is that everybody wants to be understood. Very few people want to be known. In other words, I want you to telepathically understand me without me having to reveal anything. I want you to do everything right. I want you to do exactly the way I want you to do it, but I don't want to tell you how to do that. And there are even some of us that, you know, particularly in marriages, where if I have to tell you how to do it, it doesn't count when you do it. I will not give you any points for that. We'll only give you points if you figured it out on your own. Women, men never figure it out on their own. There's a gene missing there or something. There's a, there's a chromosome going awry, and we just don't figure it out on our own. Please give us points in 2015 when you tell us how to do it right. <laughs> Look at the men. Their heads are all down. And the women are going, I have to give him points for that? Train up a husband in the way he should go. And when he is old, he will not depart from it. <laughs> Most of you tell me you have one more child anyway, you know. You'll tell me how many you have and then your husband. But there's something, if you listen and think about personal relationships, there's something in the way that personal relationships go along that you only feel intimate with people that you really know. And God really wants you to know him. Every book of the Bible, every act of God, every manifestation of his glory is him saying, I want to be known by you. And he has done so in such a way in Jesus, all of his glory, his beauty, his importance, 
His infinite power, His love, all of this is embodied in a person who can speak to us and who even now represents us before the very throne of God. Jesus, even now, is interceding for you, praying for you, knowing everything you're going through. Sometimes people would say to me, how can Jesus, who never sinned, know how much I'm going through? Well, if you think about this, Jesus, it says, was subject to every temptation that you have ever been subject to. The degree to which he endured temptation is the ultimate degree because when you give in, you're no longer tempted. The power is over. It is done because you've lost. You only know the fullness of the power of a temptation if you resist it. Jesus alone has gone to the total end of all the power of Satan to tempt a human being, and he has won, so he knows exactly how to get you to the other side. Now, in, in 2 Corinthians 3, I'd like you to read this with me out loud. This is verses 16, 17, 18. And when we read this together, I'd like you, to, I'd like you to, to recognize something. This is your identity. This is your heritage. This, see, this is the beauty of relationship with God through Jesus. Everybody comes as equals. There's nothing but level ground at the cross. Whatever the past was doesn't matter because it's behind you. Your future is determined by what you will believe about your identity. Your future is determined by whether or not you'll believe the truth of a righteous God who speaks over you, who calls you daughter, who calls you son, and says, this is who you are to me. If your eyesight will change from looking at things the way you've looked at them out of your weakness and your past and your failures, and you'll begin to look at them through the eyes of your Savior, everything will change. Look at what this verse says. Read it out loud with me. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. See, whatever you've been doing, whatever the enemy has to accuse you of, whatever failures there are, these are your past, they're not your future. When you come to the Lord... A veil is removed, and you begin to be able to see him. You begin to be able to see yourself, and you begin to be able to see the glory in others. I remember when I got filled with the Holy Spirit, and I began to pastor out of the Spirit overflow instead of out of my own flesh. And I would look out, and I could see the people for the first time. I could see the brokenness in their lives. I could see the pain in their lives, but I could see the potential. I could see the glory. I could see the light. I could see the spark. And it was, 
disappointing at times is I would call out to people and their, their faith apparatus, their trust apparatus was so broken that they couldn't believe these truths that in this room right now there is glory and all you have to do is take your veil off. Stop wearing a mask. Stop trying to behave. Stop, stop trying to be what everybody else wants you to be and just be a son, just be a daughter. Just be a brother, just be a sister. And start living out of that place. And then you see what happens is his glory begins to manifest in you. And his glory turns darkness into light. I mean, I tried for years to overcome all of my addictions and overcome all of my, my, you know, my foibles, all of my, my idiosyncrasies and all of those things. And all it ever did was make me more nervous, more tense, more anxious, more angry. But when I began to realize this is who I am, I am a child of the Most High God. There's glory in me. It's not my glory. It's His glory. It's not my light. It's His light. But it's in me and He's given it to me. And it's actually humility to speak it out. Because it would be actually prideful to say, you, you didn't give it to me. It isn't real to me. It doesn't count to me. That's prideful, resistant rebellion. The Bible has a very interesting thing to say about that kind of resistance. It's sort of, it's sort of like the sin of, of witchcraft. So in other words, do you want to be controlled by that which will destroy you? Or do you want to be controlled by that which will lift you up? And many of us, we need to get it in our heads. These are the choices we need and questions we need to ask ourselves. Do I want to keep worshiping things that don't adore me? See, when you worship Jesus, he's worshiping you back. Now, those of you who are uptight theologically, don't get too uptight about what I just said. What I mean is he's valuing you back. He's adoring you because he's adored you since before the foundation of the world. In some ways, that's what love is. Love is a form of worship. Now, I, I worship my wife, but I do so with wife worship. She does not have the place of God. I worship my kids, but I value them as my children. I worship my friends. In other words, I value my friends and their friendship. And I value my neighbors. And I value people in the community. I value all of those things. But none of those has the place that only God has. No idols in that place. He alone is God and he alone is worthy and he has revealed himself to speak to me in the person, his final word of Jesus himself. This is, this is the point of this whole thing. And, and one of the cool things, if you think about glory, if you just, on a, on a sunny day, if you look straight into the sun, your eyes will be burned. That's how glorious glory is. If you gaze, even if you gaze for a few minutes, you'll have spots for a while. You cannot gaze into the glory of God. So Jesus has come in the form of human so you can see the glory with your own eyes. So you can hear the voice of God with your own ears. And so you can know the heart of God from the very words that Jesus speaks to you. And it's an interesting thing, even 
you know, most of my life, uh, the biggest way that he's spoken to me is through the Bible. But when I have been in some of the deepest, darkest places, it was a breakthrough where the very voice of God spoke to me in my despair. And at first, it was actually audible voice in some of the key moments of my life. I mean, I can't imagine, why would God bother with me? And yet his voice, his audible voice speaking to me in places of despair. And then taking the veil off as I began to yield myself to the Holy Spirit, I began to realize he was constantly conversing with me. Only I didn't know his voice from any other voice. And so I often listened to the voice of Satan because it sounded like my own voice. Instead of listening to the voice of my Savior because it was unfamiliar to me. Once you study the scriptures carefully, you will see that your Savior is not an accuser. You'll see he doesn't, he doesn't deal in condemnation. He took the condemnation so you wouldn't have to. So his voice is not going to be a condemning voice. We worship him because of the greatness of his love, but we also worship him because of the glory that is his that makes everything about you different, more weighty, more substantial, because Now you're not just a piece of paper in the wind. You're rooted and grounded in eternity when you're rooted and grounded in Jesus. Well, how do I get this glory in in my life in a very meaningful and sustainable way? Well, I love this part, and and, and I'm going to hit this hard, and I'm going to hopefully jar this into you, maybe even hammer it into you a bit. No. <laughs> now, if you take those first four verses of chapter 2, and, and again, this is not my words. This is how the Scripture itself unfolds this relationship with God. It says, and the writer says, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard It was declared at first by the Lord. It was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So he makes this very, very clear point. He says, in order for you not to drift away from the glory of God, for you not to drift away from your first assignment, for you not to drift away from the life that is yours in Christ, you must pay much closer attention. Now, see, I don't know who, who, who translated this, but they were afraid of the Greek here. They wanted to say something balanced. They're totally bogus here. I would say much stronger words if I could. Okay? Because this sounds very uptight, European, white, or something. It says, pay close attention. That is not what the Scripture is saying here. Because, see, pay close attention says, you know, be mentally prepared. It's all intellectual. It's all cognitive. It is totally not what the Scripture says here. 
In other words, it's, it, it, in some ways, what it's actually saying is you've got you to get out of your, your European stereotype here, and you've got, you've got to get some heat on this thing. You, you've got to get out of a cool culture, and you've got to get to a hot culture in this one in order to understand it, because the word literally in Greek there means to obsess. Doesn't mean pay attention. You know, that's what we do. We put people into classrooms and make them sit still. And, and particularly when you're a little boy, you hate that, you know, that they're making you sit still. I remember this one kid one time, all day, he was going crazy, and he's, a com- he's like a second-grade comedian, and if he was really good all day, the teacher would let him have a 10-minute stand-up routine at the end of class. So he would just sit there all day, like his butt cheeks all tight and stuff, you know, and just like, oh, just so he got 10 minutes to make the class laugh. You know, that, that's the idea of paying, you know, it's, it's colon tightening kind of stuff, you know, I mean, it's just... It's just, it's just, I mean, it's not what the scripture's saying here. It's not like you all have to become, you know, dust bins of uh, academia here. That is not what it's saying. It's about becoming, actually, the, the word careful attention, it's actually furiously obsessed. See, everybody has told us all through life, you've got to be balanced. And you've got to, you know, you can't get too excited about your religious stuff. You don't want to become a fanatic. Let me tell you what. The Bible says become a furious fanatic. Obsess over this. Why is that? Why would it say that? Because it says otherwise you're going to drift. You're going to drift into things that don't have the same value. You're going to drift into things that are going to tempt you and seduce you. You're going to drift into things that are going to take you away from your real assignment, which will take you away from affirming your true identity and will never get you to your destiny unless you're furiously obsessed. Now, some of you, you you get this because inside you're, you're hearing me say you have permission to be what you always thought you should be. I am called to be furiously obsessed with Jesus. I am called to be furiously obsessed with the gospel, the good news, and getting people to know the good news. And if they're not in the fire, throw them in the fire. That's what we were made for. And somebody says, be balanced. I like to kick them in the balance. You, you know when you're balanced is when you die. You have your head on one end of the coffin and your feet on the other. That's, that's the only really time that you're balanced. If you're going to grow, you have to get obsessed. You have, to, you have to in some ways be a crazy person if you're going to grow. You have to rule out other things so that you say, this is my focus. I love this idea, furiously obsessed. Can you say that out loud with me? not a bad word, is it? For some reason, they just didn't put that in the English, but it's there in the original. Because I think people are afraid of this. So I was meditating on this, and I was asking the Lord, how do I understand this in a way that can help? And I was watching this morning. I, I got up, and I'm, I'm checking on some sports scores real quick. And I turn over to this, I turn over to this segment that they're doing a year-end segment. And it's a, a thing they do on ESPN that, that's like heart-wrenching stories. 
Um, and there was this girl. She was uh, from North Carolina, high school student. Uh, grew up you know, normal life and stuff and got into soccer and loved soccer. And her freshman year, she began to lose all feeling in her legs. And so she had to quit soccer and she went, got all these tests done, and they found out she had multiple sclerosis. So she started taking treatments and doing all of this stuff. And for eight months, she did, you know, no athletic things or anything because when her body heated up, she could no longer feel her legs. But she decided she did not want to stop her athletics. So she chose to become a long-distance runner. So here is this girl who, as soon as she gets hot... As soon as her body temperature goes up, her legs lose all feeling. And so you watch this girl as she runs, and she runs with no sense of pain whatsoever in her legs because she can't feel them. Little by little, she became better and better and better, but she was obsessed with running. By the time she got uh, good at what she was doing, she had a very special partner Uh, who was her coach. Her coach was with her every step of the way. Her coach uh, screamed from the sidelines because she could not tell the pace she was running at because she can't feel her legs. She can't tell how fast she's going. She can't tell how how she's slowing down, all these things. So she has this amazing coach. She calls him very geeky but very nice. And this amazing coach who runs along the sidelines saying, you need to go faster or you're going too fast. And this girl became one of the top runners in North Carolina. But there's this part that just is so gut-wrenching. She cannot stop. She can't stop. So when she crosses the finish line, her coach has to stand and catch her. Because she can't stop, because she can't feel to put the brakes on. So she runs, she crosses, she collapses, he catches her. And she goes almost into a, such a state of pain at this point, she just starts going, help me, help me, help me. And until they can get ice on her, until they can get ice on her legs, ice on her back, she cannot feel her legs, she cannot get up and walk until she's completely iced down and rehydrated. It is one of the most gut-wrenching things you'll ever see. Her father will not watch her. He cannot be there. He cannot take it. But this coach, every sideline, every finish line. So here is this girl, high school, her last year of high school. She's running for the state championship in her length. She gets in the middle of the pack, and she gets knocked down, and she can't feel her legs, so she can't always feel where the other, team, the other runners are. And this one runner hit her. And as the runner hit her, she fell backwards and fell to the ground, and the pack kept going. So she's struggling to get up because she can't feel her legs. She struggles to get up. This girl rejoins the pack and wins the race, is a state champion. She falls into the arms of her coach again at the end, They have to ice her down. She can't enjoy any of her triumphs until she gets feeling back in her legs. And I watched that and I wept. I wept because of the goodness of that coach. I wept because of the determination of that young woman 
But I also wept in a sense because she's furiously obsessed with something that somebody will have the record next year. She's furiously obsessed with something that she herself says that if her disease continues, she will not be able to run at all. You and I are not furiously obsessed about something that has been given to us that will change our lives for eternity. We want to be balanced about something that is worth everything to us. I don't want to be balanced about this. I want to be obsessed with this. I want to be obsessed with the grace of God. I want to be obsessed with the glory of God. I want to furiously know everything there is to know about the one who loves me this much. If that little girl can do it with MS for a race, and because she has a coach who paces her, and a coach who catches her at the end, Isn't there a sense that even though you and I are used to calling Jesus Lord, isn't it maybe better to call him coach? Isn't he right now, whether it's from within you or the sidelines or whatever, going, pace yourself. You know, if the session gets out of control, he'll say, slow down. If you start going too slow, he says, speed up. And isn't it the promise of God that at the finish line that you and I don't know how to cross? And he'll be there catching you. He'll be there catching you. I think it's worth obsessing furiously. This is why, as much as I love that we, we teach and we preach here, this is why to me the singing, the praise, the worship is equally important. Sometimes it's even greater. Because it's, it's as we begin to get out of our flesh, as we get beyond the veil, as we begin to really hear the music of the Spirit, it's then that we realize, I really am alive. I really can run. I really can be obsessed with that which has value, with that which has glory. Now, here's the final thing. It says that Jesus is the perfect imprint of the very nature and character of God. Well, the picture that immediately comes to mind is the old style. Any of you like watching old English uh, shows or anything like that, you'll see how when they, when they sent letters, they sealed them with wax. You know that old, and they, they had a stamp, and they would seal the stamp. But before they would do, they would always heat the wax up. Because what happens if you don't heat the wax up? Well, if you don't heat the wax up, what happens is the stamp will make a superficial imprint. Or the stamp will break the wax because of the hardness of the wax. See, what's happening in your life is your soul is the wax. And Jesus is stamping his imprint of his nature, of his character on you. And unless the soul is softened, the imprint will only be superficial. Unless the wax is taken from its hardened state into a a warm and embracing state, then the wax breaks with the imprint. So even the trials that are going on in your life, even the things that you're saying, I don't understand why this has happened to me. Or maybe you're like the Hebrews who said this question. Basically, if God loves me so much and he's so committed to my joy, why is life so hard? 
Or maybe, maybe like the, some of the Hebrews who had decided, I, I'm not going to meet with Christians anymore. It's too dangerous. And they said, why should I continue to worship? Why should I continue to follow after and fix my eyes on Jesus? Well, probably what they're saying is that they, they never adjusted to the stamp. They never adjusted to the seal. The hardness made the seal bounce off or broke the wax. But those of us who've been through this and there's been a heating up and there's been an adjustment and there's been adaptation and we've had to align ourselves and we've had to in the midst of even places where the questions will never be answered till heaven. We have said, breathe on me breath of God. We have said, I will worship you like Job said. The Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away, but blessed be the name of the Lord. See, that softness of wax that says, whatever else goes on in my life, you will not get my gaze from being furiously obsessed with my Savior. And you might say to me, why do we have to make all the adjustments? We didn't. He made all the adjustments to us. We're the sinners. He's the Savior. A holy God didn't have to make an adjustment to you. He could have just said, be gone. Be no more. But instead, he's been communicating through the Old Testament, through the New Testament, through friends of yours, through churches, through youth directors, through anybody that he could get you to listen to. He's been making his appeal to soften the wax so that the seal would not be superficial but it be a true imprint of the nature of God on your soul. Frank, you want to close this out? Can anyone please, can anyone please stand? Tim, can I get you to play? The amazing grace, how sweet the sound. The phrase that sort of struck me is that there are many of us in this room who are still veiled. That there's a distance between ourselves and the Lord Jesus Christ, and I think the Lord would like to move the veil, remove the veil. So I'd like you to join with us to worship right now. And as, as Tim ramps up and plays, I want you to really go for it. In the midst of that, I will call out, Jesus, pull back the veil. Jesus, pull back the veil. And as that happens, I want your hearts to engage with the Lord Jesus in a way that perhaps you had not before. Those of you who have held back in your worship, those who have held back in your grief, who have actually put a hand up to God and said, I don't want you to come close. Oh, I don't want you to look at me. I'm ashamed. I want you to open up your heart and free up your heart. Become the obsessive person that Pastor Mike was talking about. And I might, excuse me if I shout a little bit, as we're worshiping, I'm going to call on Jesus. I'm going to call on Coach Jesus to pull back the veil. Okay. Let's all worship together.
commanded. 